Anna Mailer-Paperny is a Canadian journalist who's worked for Reuters, The Globe and Mail, and Global News. She's written about the opioid crisis, migration, and Haiti after the earthquake. She's won awards for her investigative journalism. And she struggled with major clinical depression for most of her adult life, attempting suicide several times. She's written a book about her depression that's gripping, engaging, and funny. Yes, funny. And the book isn't just autobiographical, it's also historical and sharply critical of the social and medical treatment of depression. Depression touches us all, either directly or indirectly, through family members, friends, or colleagues. And I urge listeners to read Anna's courageous book, titled, Hello, I Want to Die, Please Fix Me, Depression in the First Person. On this episode of Lifespan, Anna does for Lifespan listeners exactly what she does for readers of her book. She describes depression in the first person, and she explains historical, medical, and social approaches to depression. She begins with her own story. In my mind, it started when I was 24. It started with an admission to an acquaintance on Facebook. Um, I messaged him that I was finally going to kill myself. And for me, this felt like the culmination of an extended grappling with despair that I had been going through. Um, But for him, obviously, this was a very scary admission. You know, he said, oh, please don't do that. It's not funny. I said, I'm not joking. And I logged off. That's when I deleted all my social media accounts. Um, And later that night, I just fell asleep. I was uh, exhausted. But this guy freaked out. I mean, understandably. And he phoned a friend who phoned me. And when I didn't pick up, he called the police. And so eventually, I woke up to find my phone vibrating It was a block number and I thought, oh my God, it's the newsroom because my newsroom had a, you know, when they called their number showed up as blocked. So I picked up and it was the police and they wanted to know uh, my address so they could come check me out. And I didn't know what to do. So I gave them my address and then they came to my apartment and I was terrified. It's terrifying to have armed, uniformed police officers show up at your door in the middle of the night. They looked around, they asked me some questions. And then when I said, okay, hey, can I just go back to bed now? They were like, no, we think this is serious enough. We're going to take you to hospital. I was very obedient. I was very scared. They just sort of ushered me into the crisis ward and they waited with me there until I was admitted. I never received mental health care before. I didn't consider myself having a mental illness. I didn't think I felt myself as needing this. And I told the psychiatrist who assessed me like, I'm fine. I'd like to go. Also, could you please give me a prescription for sleeping pills? Because I thought this that seemed to me to be something that was uh, innocuous enough to ask for, but that I could maybe use later to overdose. So she sort of took me at my word. Um, she was like, you don't want treatment? Fine. Goodbye. Um, she gave me a prescription for sleeping pills and sent me out of there. I probably would have killed myself that night or tried to kill myself, but... I got an assignment that was supposed to cover um, this campaign announcement. So um, that sort of postponed a suicide attempt. But that night, it seemed like I was just at the end of the line. It felt like I'd failed everything. I was out of options. And suicide just felt like the best and the only option left to me. 
how did you think about compartmentalizing what you were doing as opposed to what you were feeling? And it's a challenge to explain because I can recognize that in hindsight, and even now, because this is something that I still struggle with, um, it's not rational. Uh, my work is really important to me and it's really important to just my, it's, it gives me a sense of purpose. It gives me a reason to keep going. My work is, is incredibly seminal to my existence, but I felt as though I was not good enough. I felt as though I was a fraud and a failure. And so even though on a day-to-day basis, I was writing stories, I was filing stories, I was getting things published, I was doing interviews, it was getting increasingly difficult just to get out of bed, let alone, you know, to get into the office or to make a call and do an interview. The activities that gave my life purpose were becoming increasingly difficult. And at the same time, I felt like a failure at the very things that were most important to me. And this failure is so painful to me, the only way out of that pain is to end my life. Um, So that's how I was feeling that night. And I overdosed on the sleeping pills that I'd been prescribed. And then I I swallowed, um, I want to say a liter or two of antifreeze. I'd been thinking about suicide for quite some time and I'd bought it a couple of weeks ago and it had sat sort of under the sink in my bathroom. And then that's the last thing I remember until I woke up in the ICU a couple of days later. A friend had found Anna unconscious on the floor of her apartment. She hadn't been responding to text messages or phone calls or emails, which was very out of character. So the friend ran over to Anna's apartment and convinced the building superintendent to unlock Anna's door. Anna was rushed to the emergency room. And as she just said, she woke up in the ICU a few days later. And my parents were there and I just felt awful. I just felt terrible. A lot of people wonder how you can do this to the people that you love and who love you. And it's hard for me to explain that. All I can say is that in my mind at the time, feeling like a failure and feeling like a burden to the people I love the most, it feels as though in my head that this would be a gift. My absence would actually be a good thing for the people I love, that they would be better off without me. You explained that really well. Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah. good. Because I don't want it to seem like a totally, I'm totally heartless or like I have no consideration for people. If you're feeling worthless to yourself, you assume that you're worthless to everyone as well. Exactly. After she was stabilized in the ICU, Anna was transferred to the psych ward where she was hospitalized involuntarily. And you're effectively not allowed to leave the hospital until they sign you out. I got an up-close look at the kinds of people who end up in a psych ward. And it's, pe- it's people who are in crisis because they, you know, lack, lack a place to sleep, lack a place to go, they lack a safe place to um, recover. Maybe they're intoxicated and then need to come down from whatever they're on. It really gave me a good look at the kinds of people that the system is failing. Uh, because a lot of people they don't get a whole lot of care while they're inpatients. But then when they get discharged, uh, they get effectively no care, no like no transfer of care from inpatient to outpatient, uh, which can be really damaging. So your journalist persona was was on even as you were in the hospital. Yeah, it's hard to turn off sort of my reporter instincts. 
my reporter instincts were at war a little bit with my depression persona. Suicide and suicidal ideation is profoundly about an end to curiosity. There aren't things that you still want to know. And so death seems like a good idea. Anna stayed in the short-term psych ward for a few days. They were just going to let me go, which I was happy with. I just wanted to get out of there. Um, my parents, on the other hand, were quite upset. They did not want me to be discharged without extra care. So they asked for a second opinion. And the second psychiatrist who assessed me decided that despite my claiming that I was fine, that I could be discharged, he decided that I was seriously ill and that I needed further care and further inpatient care. Like, I was so pissed off. But Anna learned later that discharging suicidal patients without a long-term plan for care is a way to ensure that a patient either winds back up in the hospital in a few days or weeks or succeeds in killing themselves. Anna's parents' insistence on a second opinion and a plan to be put in place after hospital release was exactly the right thing to do. And the second physician eventually became Anna's outpatient psychiatrist. And that was so lucky. So few people get that, which is obscene because it's, it should be such a basic element of care. Antifreeze is a really serious poison. Um, and that could have long-term health consequences. I was very lucky. Um, I actually, spoiler alert, um, tried again with windshield wiper fluid, which is the same kind of poison, um, several years later, just, la- just in the winter of 2019. And um, it, it should have killed me. Um, I, I drank a lot of it. And like all of my systems, my renal system, my respiratory system, my uh, cardiovascular system, my brain were all just on the brink of collapse. Um, I came very, very close to dying. Um, and I got, I got very lucky, um, both that first time and the most recent, and the more recent time, um, that I was able to recover. They did brain scans later and they found I developed scar tissue in my brain, um, as a result of the poisoning. The more recent time in 2019, I had to literally relearn how to walk and how to write and how to read because my brain and sort of the neural connections were so damaged. You've had the same psychiatrist through all of this. Is that right? Yes, it is. This is very alarming to the people treating you and the people who love you because everyone is trying to prevent you from doing this again. What is their response then to um, another suicide attempt? My parents were in the emergency department basically 24-7. My siblings, when they could get off work, they were there. It was a, a huge amount of work for them, I think, to support me in my recovery. And... They were incredibly loving and incredibly supportive. And I'm so lucky to have them. I'm so lucky to have that support because I don't know if I could have bounced back without that. People are understandably supportive when someone has a serious physical illness. And we don't see that around mental illness. Um, People just don't know how to, in general, don't know how to respond. The amount of stigma around depression and suicide and mental illness broadly is just staggering. And that extends to your friends. It extends to your family. I remember my grandfather on the phone after my first suicide attempt. 
And he was just bellowing, no more stupid tricks. And, and, and he loved me. And this is his way of telling me that he loved me. But like hearing that is just, just not helpful. Or even um, my brother, after my most recent suicide attempt, he said, Anna, you've got to stop doing this to us. And I was just devastated because that's, you know, when, in your worst moments, that's how you think of yourself. You think of yourself as a person who just does nothing but cause pain to the people that she loves most. Feelings of guilt are so overpowering and so debilitating. And they can also feed into, you know, ironically, they can also feed into the desire to die because you think like, I should stop hurting these people by ending my life and then I won't be around to hurt them anymore. Things get into your brain and it just, it just becomes a loop. Exactly. In Anna's book, she explains that family members' confusion about how best to respond to their loved one's attempt to die is understandable. Physicians rarely provide guidance despite the seriousness of the patient's illness. In her book, Anna describes a man who eventually jumped from a 10-story ledge and succeeded in killing himself. His heartbroken sister told Anna about her brother's first suicide attempt when the entire family accompanied him to the hospital. But the hospital quickly discharged him and no one told any family member how high risk their relative still was for suicide. The sister said to Anna, when my dog gets his teeth cleaned, I get a handout from the vet. And yet when someone is discharged after a suicide attempt, no one gets any information at all. It's just infuriating. People act as though if they don't talk about it, it'll just go away that if they didn't mention it, if nobody talked about it, it just wouldn't be a problem. And for a long time, like that was, you know, it dissuaded people from talking about it because they were worried about contagion, as though people who were fine otherwise would all of a sudden hear the word suicide and think, wow, that sounds like a great idea. What we know now is that talking about it is so important and so crucial. And I think anybody who has been suicidal will tell you how much of a difference it makes to be able to talk about it and vent about it openly, um, as painful as that can be to either to the person themselves or to the people around them. And yet we still have that image of contagion because there's, there's this myth out there that if, if in a high school someone kills themselves, then there's a danger of a number of other people killing themselves. Or if you watch a television show, um, about suicide that could lead someone to commit suicide. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's enraging. And look, I don't want to pretend like that ignorant um, or ill-informed portrayals can't make things worse. Like those can have, those can cause harm for sure. Um, but then the solution is just to have a better informed, more sensitive, more accurate portrayal. It's not to just clam up and pretend that the problem will go away if you don't mention it. The problem is not going to go away on its own. You talk about, in your book, you talk about the consequences of being honest about your depression. That after a while, you get, you get accustomed to learning that if you talk about it, you can find yourself in even worse straits. Yeah. No, in, in so many ways, we teach people with mental illness and with, you know, who are thinking about suicide especially, um, that it's wrong to talk about what they're going through. 
And we teach them that you can lose friends who don't trust you or who won't feel comfortable being around you or who will find it painful to be around you or they just think you're crazy and you're not friend material. If you you tell your employer, um, it can change that your employment relationship. Anna's book is not only a contemporary account of depression and its treatment, it's a historical account as well. I asked her to describe a bit of that history. But to the degree that we have tried to treat it, you know, we've tried alkaline baths, we've tried lobotomies. As Anna notes, from the 1930s to the 1950s, doctors often treated mental illness by performing a lobotomy, that is, drilling a hole in a patient's skull to sever connections attached to the brain's frontal lobe. We now think of that surgical procedure as a barbaric atrocity. Anna also explained that yet another treatment for mental illness, electroconvulsive therapy to induce seizures, also originated in the 1930s, although people had been finding ways to induce seizures to treat mental illness as far back as the 16th century. What shocked me was how little real progress has been made in terms of our understanding of depression and suicide and mental illness broadly. Um, We made a few uh, steps forward in the mid 20th century. There were a few drugs that we developed that were developed that, you know, worked on um, suppressing the reuptake of different neurotransmitters, but we haven't really improved on our understanding of why those work and how they work and how to make their efficacy better. As Anna explains, today there is still a large percentage of patients suffering from depression who try a host of treatments and don't improve or never achieve remission. The brain is so complicated and we know so little about it that there's a disincentive on the part of drug companies to invest money in in researching new drugs and new treatments because it's just too hard. There are no easy wins. So you've had this mass exodus of people from... Uh, from brain research, from mental illness research. But it's really frustrating for anybody who's looking for treatment now, for anybody who's looking for care now, to be told that there's going to be nothing new for maybe the next decade is really disheartening. Like my psychiatrist, he's, he's a smart guy. He knows how this illness works, but he can't tell me how the drugs work that he prescribes to me. He can't tell me why some might work and some might not work or what's going on in my brain. He has no idea. Um, so that's really humbling to learn how little we really know about the brain. Yeah, your description of, it, it really is just experimentation. Let's see if this one works better for you. Let's see if this, that one works better for you. Absolutely. It's trial and error and error and error. It's like a merry-go-round. It's like the most depressing merry-go-round in the world. Anna also studied a widespread problem in both the United States and Canada, the use of police officers as the first responders when someone is having a mental health crisis. We've created a situation where police respond to emergencies and urgent situations of all kinds. They're just expected to go out no matter what the problem is. So you have these officers who are suddenly face-to-face with someone who is hearing voices, who is suicidal, uh, who is having this break from reality, and they don't know how to deal with them. They don't know how to react to what, they're, how, to what they're doing or what they're saying. There isn't anywhere for them to bring them. There, there, isn't, uh, there aren't psych beds available. And 
that makes it worse because that means it's more likely that even if even if the interaction itself doesn't end in death or an injury, um, the person ends up in jail for no reason other than that they're ill and that they're acting erratically. You need to make police not be the first responders to mental health crises. There need to be other people there who get sent to those those emergencies. Crisis workers who are trained in de-escalation, who are trained in empathy, who know how to provide care uh, verbally and to provide something as simple as dry socks or a place to sleep or a place to detox. We need community care. We need care for people with mental illness. The only reason that deinstitutionalization resulted in these problems is because we never sort of provided the kinds of care and the kind of services that people who were ill but still belonged in the community needed to survive and to thrive in the community. In her book, Anna describes the so-called suicide contracts that are sometimes used in hospitals. Doctors ask someone who has attempted suicide to sign a contract promising they won't do it again. Anna points out that a suicide contract is about as effective as having someone with cancer sign an agreement that they won't let any more of their cells reproduce in an uncontrollable, dangerous way. Everyone understands the foolishness of doing something like that, but we don't view mental illness as being on a par with physical illness. We tend to believe that the mentally ill could or should have control over their illness, and that wrongheadedness contributes to the stigma of mental illness. And it's so enraging that this is still where we are, that we still see this happening. Until we you know, treat mental health care with the seriousness that we treat other forms of health care, we're going to continue to see this marginalization. We're going to continue to see stigma um, both minimize the, the seriousness of this illness, of these illnesses, and maximize the threat that is perceived to be posed by people suffering from these illnesses. We're going to continue to see people going without care and getting worse. Depression is the leading cause of disability out there. What's so interesting is, is that people who suffer from depression can tell you it feels like a physical illness. I mean, I, I never had depression as severe as yours, but I went through a really hard time in my early 30s. And um, I remember looking around at friends and family thinking, how can you not tell something is terribly wrong with me? I, I you know, I felt it so acutely, physically, that... Mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, and that's what's so, you know, that's what's so confusing about mental illness, too, is that people who don't understand it don't realize that it feels as debilitating um, and painful, you know, whatever adjectives you want to use, as um, a physical illness. Exactly, exactly. And yet we feel so, like, we're conditioned to f- to minimize what we're feeling, to feel ashamed of it. Like, I would... I would have days when I could not get up in the morning and I could not get out of bed. And I was ashamed to tell my boss that I needed a sick day because I couldn't think, I felt like I didn't have a good reason for it. So I'd be lying there in bed, just completely incapacitated and so ashamed of myself that not only could I not call in sick, but I would think I should be dead because I can't function and I don't have a good reason for not functioning. And it becomes this vicious cycle. 
In her book, Anne also describes the credibility problem that psychiatrists and psychologists sometimes face. She characterizes the problem as cultural. For some people, depending on their cultural background, psychiatry and psychology don't command the same respect as cardiology or dermatology or oncology. Psychiatry also has an unflattering history. Psychiatrists need to recognize that for decades, their field was characterized by coercion and by an abrogation of patients' rights and by methods that weren't always backed up by clinical science. And so I think it's, on, on the one hand, we need to change the, our cultural attitudes towards psychiatry. But on the other hand, I think psychiatry needs to recognize that it needs to put the patient first in its, in its workings. Um, and really listen to when, when your when your pursuit of medicine depends on self-reporting and self-reported symptoms by the patient, you need to really listen to the person in front of you and really listen to the patient. You're talking about learning to be a good listener. I mean, frankly, um, that's a skill that all doctors need to acquire and, and yes. don't really acquire it. Certainly in the United States, we over-test. It's one of the many reasons why our healthcare system is so extraordinarily expensive. When, when we know that taking a good patient history, uh, often the patient can tell you the diagnosis, that you don't need you know, a dozen tests to confirm that diagnosis, the patient will tell you. Mm-hmm. And, and that's as true with mental illness as it is, as it is with physical illness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think also we need to keep in mind that while almost everybody um, will, you know, 83% of people who were surveyed who uh, ended up killing themselves had seen a doctor in the year before their deaths, but only I think half of them had seen somebody for a, a mental health diagnosis. So I think we need to keep in mind that even doctors who aren't mental health specialists Um, need to have mental health on their radar. And especially GPs, who are sort of the doorway into care. But other doctors as well need to ask these questions and need to sort of keep in mind the possibility that their patient might need mental health care and keep, you know, those diagnoses in mind. Um, Because we don't want to miss people. And too often people fall through the cracks. I asked Anna how she came to feel better. Yeah, so here's where I have to be honest. Um, I think I'm still looking, I'm I'm still trying to feel better. Um, This past year, I had an intensive round of electroconvulsive therapy. Um, So that was about 39 rounds of bilateral ECT over over this past spring. And... um, and it was interesting because at first it worked really, really well. It worked better than anything else I've tried. Um, but w- when I went back for a second round um, or like a second round of, of 10 sessions, um, it, it wasn't working very well. It had started taking a real toll on my cognition and I was really distressed about losing my memory. I was distressed about being out of work and um, it just wasn't, wasn't working very well. So we, uh, we suspended that. I actually attempted suicide again this past July, feeling, you know, just really hopeless, really f- 
fearful that I wouldn't be able to rebuild my life and return to work in the same way that I had before. I'm on a new slate of medications. I'm also on taking dialectical behavioral therapy, which is a kind of talk therapy that's supposed to improve your ability to cope with distressing emotions. Um, So we're hopeful that this will lead to a path forward. But again, it's, um, it's a chronic illness, and I need to keep reminding myself of that. Um, I, hope to, I hope to achieve remission. I, it still remains you know, one of my goals, and I, I try to remain hopeful. But it's really difficult to look back at the past decade or so and think like, man, this has been like a lot of the same misery. I, I mean, obviously, it's glib to say that because... You know, externally, I, like I've had a really fantastic life. I've been able to see my niece being born. I've been able to see my brother and sister-in-law get married. I've been able to see my siblings thrive and see my parents. And I published a book. Um, but mentally, a lot of the past decade has been a struggle. And it continues to be a struggle. I'm hopeful that it will improve. I'm hopeful it will become easier and that and, and that hope won't feel so effortful. Um, but yeah, it remains that every day I need to talk myself down from suicide. So I don't know how much longer I'll have to do that for. But we'll see. I asked Anna to talk about her use of dark humor throughout her book. I I chuckled throughout your book. I'm so glad. I, I so appreciated your use of dark humor. It was enormously helpful. Yeah, I credit my family, honestly, because um, I think collectively, that's how we cope. We cope by laughing at life and laughing at the things that are terrorizing us. And I mean, we were making jokes um, in the ICU and in the psych ward. Um, I have friends who have really inappropriate senses of humor, and so they really help me. But I just felt that in order to make this, in order to make this engaging, but also in order to make it not awful to read, I needed to be able to laugh at myself. And that has really helped me. It, It helped me keep going just on a daily basis. Given the widespread ramifications of severe depression, Anna ends her book with an observation clearly born of frustration. She writes, For a society that's gone so far in so many civil and scientific arenas, there are some things we still do astonishingly badly. Treating the most debilitating chronic illness out there is one of them. So let's fix this, goddammit, she writes, and move on to bitching about something else. I urge Lifespan listeners to read Anna's truly wonderful book, Hello, I Want to Die, Please Fix Me, Depression in the First Person. And don't be scared off by the title. One reviewer describes Anna's book as, quote, multi-part memoir depression expose containing a generous dose of sardonic humor. You'll find a link to that book review in the online description of this episode. 
I learned so much from Anna's book about depression, its history, its treatment, and avenues for solutions. You'll learn a great deal too from her engaging and funny and courageous book. Lifespan is a production of WOUB Public Media. I'm Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University and the executive producer and host of Lifespan. Adam Rich is our producer, audio engineer, and audio editor. Join us next month when we talk to a couple about the choice they made during their second pregnancy after learning that their child had Down syndrome.